From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus, and today I'm talking to Andy Saladino, Director of Development at Youth Emergency Services. When you're in survival mode like that, I can't imagine focusing on calculus or you know, Jane Eyre or whatever the class is, right? Yeah, like, no way. There's no way. I mean, and that's where we're really want to be a support too. Like, yes, is really all about addressing that immediate need first, food, shelter, safety. And then from there, let's focus on mental health. Let's focus on job readiness. How do you get your resume ready? And addressing the trauma that they've been through so that they can make this a temporary situation, not a permanent one. We're talking about how YES supports unhoused youth in Omaha and the challenges they face, and the Dance for a Chance Halloween Ball fundraiser. Stay tuned for our conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. Today I'm talking with Andy Saladino, Development Director of Youth Emergency Services. Youth Emergency Services, or YES, assists youth ages 16 to 21 experiencing homelessness and near homelessness by meeting immediate needs for food, shelter, clothing, and safety. YES has a street outreach team whose members distribute supplies out of backpacks and provide immediate information and services. YES's services also include a 24-hour emergency shelter, transitional living program, and maternity group home. YES's Dance for a Chance Halloween Ball is on October 12th and includes a dance contest and silent auction to raise funds for the organization. In the interest of full disclosure, I am one of the competing dancers. Here's my conversation with Andy Saladino. Thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like this past year I've really gotten to know a lot about youth emergency services, but I'm excited to get to go through this whole interview process to really dig in um, to the importance it has to the Omaha community. So thank you for being here, Andy. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your role first, and then we're gonna dig into everything youth emergency services does. Yeah, so I'm the director of development, which is like a fancy way of saying, handling all the money and marketing and branding and all that stuff. So that's what I spend most of my time I'm doing is trying to make sure we have all the money we need for our programs, but then also, and so I started back in December of, what year is it, 23, December of 2022, and so, uh, you know, since then really focusing on, like, storytelling and how do we, like, tell the authentic experience of what it means to be a homeless youth and um, things like that, yeah. So Youth Emergency Services also goes by YES, as you'll hear Mm -hmm. it. Um, You guys help assist youth experiencing homelessness and near homelessness. So what do you kind of define as youth? Like what ages are we talking here? So the the sort of average age of youth that we see is like um, 19 to 20 years old. But we, I mean, see as young as 16, 17 coming into our street outreach center. We go up to, depending on the program, either 21 or 24. Um, Technically, we see any age. It's rare for us to see, um, but not uncommon to see kids who are like 11, 12, 13. Um, And then we also have a maternity group home. Um, And so we have kids who are... um, Man, they're not born or very young um, who are in that program, too. So we're really kind of running the gamut from sort of zero to 24. Okay, so I think myself, like a lot of people, didn't realize that the problems that you are addressing were actually real problems here in Omaha. Uh, and so I was shocked to hear that over 300 youth sleep on the streets of Omaha every night. Um, if this is true for listeners to kind of have that same shock to hearing this, can you help explain what those problems are? Yeah, youth homelessness is a pretty like invisible problem when it comes to homelessness in general. So uh, for a lot of reasons, um, mostly because youth homelessness doesn't fall under like the traditional definition of homelessness for a lot of people. And so because those come from the federal government and that decides how much money people get and they have to have rules and blah, blah, blah. Because from their perspective, someone who's homeless is someone who is sleeping on the streets chronically every day every night the youth that we serve their experience some people have that there's a young man in our care right now who we discovered him under a bridge uh, back in February and so it's not uncommon to see that but a lot of times it's couch hopping and so because of um, 
because of things like couch hopping or they are um, – you know, staying with one friend one night or whatever, we define it as if you're bringing all of your stuff with you wherever you go, then you're homeless. If you don't necessarily know where you are going to sleep that next night, regardless if it's on a park bench, under a bridge, at your aunt's house or a friend's house or whatever, then that's homelessness. And that comes from a lot of different reasons. I mean, sometimes it is kids who have had problems at home run away from abuse they may have had a different gender or sexual identity and that does not vibe with their parents and so they decide to leave we see that quite often a lot of times it's kids who've aged out of the foster care system and so they have been hopping around to different homes that was the case for this young man i was mentioning before he had hopped around he actually um, his sister was in foster care and was being molested and he took some into his own hands to sort of address that situation and gotten in some trouble there and just sort of hopped around Boys Town and Oklahoma Home for Boys and us before he sort of landed here in a little bit more of a permanent situation so that he could develop those skills of self-resiliency, of self-sufficiency and sort of work to um, create a more permanent situation. So then how do these youth find you, whether or not it, they are sleeping on a couch or on the streets? How do how do you guys get the word out to the community that you serve? Well, we've been around for 50 years. So I we know. Have, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next year's <laughs> going to be a big year. So, yeah, I'm founded in 1974, 50 years. Um, and so we've I mean, we have a lot of community partnerships from there. We're engaged in like um, some sort of larger systems like um, the Metro Area Continuum of Care for Homelessness or MATCH, which is sort of the organization that sort of coordinates all the homelessness services across the country or country across Omaha. And um, we have connections in the school systems. We have a lot of great partnerships with all these other homelessness um, organizations. And so if a young person goes to another place and there's no room or it's not the right fit for them or they need individual needs, um, they'll call us and we will get them into sort of our continuum of care, starting in our emergency shelter, um, where we're really trying to find permanent situations. So, so we will oftentimes sort of send kids to other states if they've got family there, work to get them into permanent supportive housing. And then if they have hit sort of certain criteria, we'll get them into our sort of temporary um, housing situations, our transitional living program, our maternity group home, and really help them build that self-sufficiency and resiliency, like I said before. And then, and then we also, I'm sorry, and then no. the last piece of that is that we also do physical street outreach. And so we are out on the streets a couple of days a week in partnership with the police department and with Match, like I said before, to go to known encampments or abandoned buildings or places where they know homelessness um, or homeless people are um, to say, hey, here's a bottle of water, here's some snacks, here's some food, here's what we do and what we're about. There's a young man who comes to our center just about every day. And he is homeless and he is not interested in being in a housing situation. He has been in other mm. group housing before and he's just, we've talked about it with many times and we've said, how can we help you get into a situation like this? And he's or into more permanent housing. And he's like, I'm good. I just want to have a meal because we serve about 100 meals a week. I want to hang out and watch anime on the TV in the corner <laughs> and um, then he, take a shower and then he'll go about the rest of his night and come back the next morning. And so that's so our program is a volunteer program and people know that there is a curfew and there are expectations of them and about getting a job and keeping a job. And we're the support system to help them figure that out. But um, not every kid is ready. So then how like for for those kids who are kind of couch surfing and maybe they would never really go to maybe a shelter or... Like, how do those people find out about you? So it's usually partnerships in the schools okay. is really how we see it the most. So there's this program called McKinney-Vento. It's a federal program, and it tells you um, – means essentially that every school has to be tracking – every state and every school then has to track how many homeless um, – how many kids are self-identifying as homeless every mm. year. And K-12, through the Omaha Metro, and the 20, 21 to 22 school year – um, I counted all, all the grades. It was, you know, Omaha, Bellevue, Millard, all of those area schools. There were 1,200 oh who identified goodness. K through 12. Yeah, and it's not, it's more than people realize. And that's also someone who's a family who maybe fell on hard times temporarily, right? That counts. Um, 
also people who are chronic, but that also means people who are not self-identifying and maybe not saying that. So the likelihood that you are in a class with someone who's experiencing homelessness or has experienced homelessness and has that lived experience is pretty high at that point. Wow. And the effect that that must have on their like attention in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're in survival mode like that, I can't imagine focusing on calculus or you know, Jane Eyre or whatever the class is, right? Like, <laughs> no way. There's no way. I mean, and that's where we're really the want to be a support to like, yes, is really all about addressing that immediate need first, food, shelter, safety. And then from there, let's focus on mental health. Let's focus on job readiness. How do you get your resume ready and addressing the trauma that they've been through so that they can make this a temporary situation, not a permanent one. Taking a step back, just like you personally, what drew you to this work? Um, for me personally, so I have an arts background. Um, I worked at an organization called Amplify Arts for six years. They're amazing. They are amazing. Shout out. Um, and um, I have a theater background. That's what brought me to Omaha. I'm originally from the Boston area. I worked at the Rose Theater downtown. <gasps> Love the Rose. Shout out to yes. them too. And for me, it was I was on this path of being like a teaching artist or a director or something like that and just didn't really see that for me in terms of stability. And it became a question of how do I use my like, to lack of a better phrase, like superpowers for like good or for evil, yeah. right? Like how do I would feel and sort of fell into this sort of fundraising role and sort of using my like, because theater is essentially a degree in soft skills. Oh, so, absolutely. Right. And so how do you, how can I use that in a way that's going to create, you know, state paycheck and consistency for my kids and like all that. And so um, some of the fundraising when I lived in New York for a couple of years and came back here and. Um, but for specifically for yes, I, you know, after six years in the arts, I was hungry for like feeling like I was moving the needle on something permanent mm. and feeling like I was like seeing impact and having a hand in that. And I, you know, and so, um, when this, uh, opportunity opened up in the winter of last year, I really jumped at it. They were in a really exciting time. There was new leadership and, um, they were being really intentional about making changes for the better. And so it was a nice opportunity to sort of come in and um, really help move the needle on this. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Andy Saladino, Director of Development at Youth Emergency Services. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. So in the last 50 years, you said there's just a whole rich history there started out with a bunch of volunteers and has since shifted. And you just uh, mentioned that the leadership has changed over the last year, mm -hmm. if I'm hearing that correctly. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the changes that you're intentionally making now with this new leadership? Yeah, I mean, it's big things and small things, right? Like um, some but sometimes the little things are sort of the biggest. Right. And so I think the biggest change that we've really seen was um a real big focus on DEI and making sure that we were being um, intentional about the people we were serving and that, you know, recognizing that, um, like, we have this maternity group home, right? The um, maternity mortality rate uh, for black women in particular is mm -hmm. much higher than for any other race, right? And so, and that is the number one demographic for people we see in that program is black and brown girls. Mm. And so we were starting partnerships with people to um, really be intentional about that with like the Black Doula Collective and places like that about sort of making sure that they have um, the support that they need and recognizing that our case managers were like not able to like go and be part of that birthing experience, right? So how do we make sure that they have that support? We got a big grant from um, UNMC, the Behavioral Health Education Center of Nebraska, is what it's called, um, for a mental health program and recognizing that if we're gonna focus on self-sufficiency and resiliency and that this is about making youth homelessness a temporary situation, not a permanent one, that has to be trauma-informed and it also has to come from a place of addressing mental health. And the trauma that they've been through has to be addressed in order for them to move forward. So what have you learned so far about, like, what does it mean to be, like, trauma-informed? Was that the phrase you used? I sure did. Yeah. Tell I me think, more about that. I think it's just, I think it's about recognizing, being trauma-informed, I think, is about recognizing um, that everyone's coming from this from a different place. 
and we want to hold everyone to high standards, right? We recognize that like you are, there's a bare minimum of like, you have to be able to make curfew. You have to be able to um, get a job and keep a job. You have to be able to be um, safe to the people around you because the, a lot of our youth are living in a um, sort of apartment-like housing. So they'll have two, three, maybe four roommates, depending on where they are. Um, and so recognizing that not everyone is coming to that with different experiences and, and that um, while we want to hold everyone to high standards, we need to individualize our care as much as possible. And that's mm-hmm. why our organization is really people driven. Uh, we really we need individualized care and case managers for people to be able to create a custom care plan and an action plan to address the things that these youth have gone through uh, so that they can move forward safely. So what do those custom plans look like? Um, it always starts with the base of mental health. It always starts with the base of um, res- building a strong resume and getting a job and keeping a job. A lot of times the youth that come to us have had real gaps in their upbringing. Yeah. And so particularly in our maternity group home, they don't necessarily know how to cook for themselves or clean for themselves. And so it's, it's like real focus on life skills. Um and then especially if there's mothers, we want to be able to, you know, they also may not have had the best upbringing, right? And so how do they, getting them the education they need sort of early childhood and how do you be a good parent and um, what to expect in those first couple of years and things like that. Mm. That's so powerful, the work you guys are doing. I feel like that's the reason why you're one of my like kind of favorite organizations in here because you can really see all of the support that goes to you guys gets distributed out to do those impactful things and that you center the person first. Yeah, that was what really drew me to this organization first, too, is that it was really like people first and individualized. And, you know, I personally am interested in um, impact and wanting like an organization that really like laser focuses on like an issue and a community and not trying not the like sort of shotgun approach of like we'll do a little of this and a little of that and a little here and you know there were programs that were happening previously um sort of before uh klisha our new executive director not new she's been here two years (laughs) but newer um had started that sort of i think fell under that and you know it was really about like like I said, like laser focusing on this specific community and need and how do we address that and um, in the best, most complete way possible. Based off of your community and their needs, like what do their needs look like that you're providing? How has that kind of shifted from the start of of the program 50 years ago until now? Yeah, that's a good question. So I mean, we, like, like I said, 50 years ago, 1974 was all volunteer led. Um, it was a bunch of sort of concerned citizens had noticed um, sort of a group of young people living in the old market. And so this started with just like street outreach, like here's some water, here's some blankets and whatever. And that they purchased a house called the Yes House. And that became sort of the first emergency shelter. And, you know, I don't, we don't have a lot of records necessarily of what happened in those early days, but we know that where we are today is based on best practices of what it means to address youth homelessness. And so over 50 years, we've certainly adapted and changed what needed to be done based on the community. I mean, COVID being a perfect example, um, we were seeing, you know, hundreds of kids, uh, youth and young people uh, a week, and then COVID hit and we didn't really see as many. We knew that they were there, right? We also weren't able to let them into our space, particularly in those early days, right? When nobody yeah, really know, knew anything. You don't know what's happening. Yeah, like no, everybody was like upside down and backwards. And so, you know, they started a mobile pantry program. And so that like to be able to bring that stuff out there, like I said, we serve about 100 hot meals a week. Um, and that's actually up from a year ago. It was more like 100 a month. Um, you've seen a real increase lately. And so. Um, Why do you think you know, that is? For right now, I think it's a lot of reasons. I mean, for right now, I th- we were doing more outreach out in the community. We were doing more street outreach, things like that. Um, kids are back in school now. Um, uh, but in the, for the summer, I mean, they're not getting as many meals as they were during the day. So we were seeing more. There's always a bit of a um, dip um, dip in the sort of colder months um, because they're not going to be outside. They'll find other situations. And so in the summer, we see a lot more, um, but we also see them more for um, like we went and you always need like socks and hats and clothes and coats and things like that. So we can take those out to them. 
where can people bring those items that you guys need? Yeah, so you can bring that to our Street Outreach Center, which is on 26th and Harney Street. Um, and we take anything there, even if it's like your old, you know, desk from whatever or couch or maybe don't bring couches. But we have a, <laughs> we have a thrift store partner called Tip Top Thrift Shop. And um, anything they anything that's donated to us that we can't use, we bring over to them because they sell it and anything outside of rent for their building, uh, the proceeds all come back to yes. What? Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. It's this volunteer-run organization. We've been partnering them for a super long time. It's they're all it's all volunteer, um, and they um, they. I mean, that's quite a bit. They're really generous, and they are constantly asking like, "What things do you need?" We'll like put things aside for the kids. You know, the youth can come and go shopping for stuff that they're interested. I think that's another trauma-informed thing too. That you know is. A young person said something to um, something to us recently, and she said, "You know, I hadn't I hadn't been handed a lot of things. People, there was some, this couple in Illinois had driven her here and it set her up the bank account and all this money. It was really great, and then was just sort of like, adios, goodbye. Oh She'd been handed things for a long time, and it wasn't until she came to yes that she really knew how to take better advantage of those things." She learned how to like cook and how to save money and do that. And so it's like we really try to move beyond the handout and really try to help build that um, motivation internally, not yeah. just externally. I love that. As a thrift enthusiast myself, I For always real. find little treats. I feel like you I should check it out. It's on six. It's on Benson. It's, it's in like Benson. right on the main strip on the east. It sure side. is. Um, east, south, southeast. Nope. Northeast. Ye- I don't know. I'm bad with directions, so I believe you. I think it's northeast. It's like side. right across from the the little tiny gallery, with the old little gallery. So people can bring it to you, bring things to you guys. What kind of items are you looking for? So we always need, you know, it's the colder months now. We need gloves, hats, coats, things like that. We always need um, hygiene products, um, deodorant, soap, shampoo, conditioner. We do have a lot of um, people of color. Um, who are in our programs and so sort of um, products that are not just for hair like mine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for more diverse hairstyles would also be important. Um, uh, we also have a meal calendar. Like I said, we serve you know about 100 hot meals a, di- uh, a week. And so we have a meal calendar on our website that you can come in and sponsor one financially um, or you can come and bring in the food yourself and serve it yourself if you'd like to. We have a lot of sort of community groups that do that. And so um, then also the holidays are coming too. And so, you know, we want to be able to provide sort of presents and, you know, those special meals that we all get to experience too. So we'll be putting some of those things up on our website and our wish list soon so we can you know, have a good Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever people celebrate um, as well. That's awesome. So going back to a phrase you had said a few questions back, but, you know, you're like, we look at what the best practices are across the nation and kind of try to implement those here in Omaha. So what are some of those best practices? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, the big thing there is obviously mental health, right? And so that was a big thing we were contracting with another organization and like if they had spare hours for their on-call therapist or something like that they would be able to we could send our youth there that just was not sufficient we just really needed our own and so we're actually hiring for our own mental health coordinator now Um, I think you know that idea of being really trauma-informed and being um, more specific about what each individual needs while holding them to a higher standard to some of those best practices you know going out to the community, not just expecting people to come to you and find you, I think is something that um, has been really intentional over the last few years, too. I'm talking with Andy Saladino about youth emergency services, unhoused youth in Omaha, and the Dance for a Chance Halloween Ball fundraising event on October 12th. Stay tuned for the rest of our conversation after this break.
Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Maria Corpus. You can subscribe and hear previous episodes of this show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. My guest today is Youth Emergency Services Development Director, Andy Saladino. We're talking about homelessness in the Omaha Metro and Yes's upcoming fundraiser, the Dance for a Chance Halloween Ball on October 12th. By the way, I'm competing in this fundraiser's dance competition. Here is the rest of my conversation with Andy Saladino. Okay, so we've talked about your street outreach center, your maternity group home. What are some of the other programs that you offer? So our sort of full continuum starts with our street outreach program. And so, like I said, people come to us, they can come, they can get a shower, they can do their laundry, they can get a hot meal. In the cold months, we're a warming center. In the hot months, we're a cooling center. Um, From there, we hope that we can channel them into our housing programs. Um, And we have sort of staff there at all times sort of walk people through those opportunities. And so it starts with our emergency shelter. You can be there for our average is about 60 days. Um, And like I said, we want, like I said before, we want to help people find a permanent situation there if we can. Uh, From there, they have to meet certain criteria. They can get into our housing programs, our transitional living program, our maternity group home. Um, And those are a couple of houses because we have about nine locations spread across the metro. Wow. Yeah. And um, which I will say we have some announcements to make about that. If you come to the event that I'm sure we'll talk about in a few moments. (laughs) But... um, yeah, so we we have all these houses. They sort of live scattered across the metro. Um, uh, and, you know, in order to be in that program, you have to be able to have a job and keep a job. They need to attend Wednesday group. So those can be, um, um, you know, job readiness classes, financial literacy classes. It can be outings to go and, you know, do things, those sort of life skills like we talked about before. Um, and from there, if they are successfully discharged after 18 months and they've been in the program, um, they can be part of a program called TIP or Transition in Place, um, which is where if they're at least 19 years old, they can, uh, which means they can sign their own lease. They sign their own lease. We will pay their first month's rent and the utility activation stuff, and they will have their own apartment. And from there, we pay first months and then we scale down about 10% each month and then they scale up in that month. And so it was just about trying to like extend that off ramp, right? Again, these kids have been through trauma. They have been through a lot. And so we've seen a lot of successful discharges and people going on to live really, um, really fruitful and successful lives. But we wanted to be able to provide more opportunity for those who needed more care to be able to say, we're just going to ease you off into this, into the real world, just a little bit slower. And so if you've been through that, and then that sort of ends that time. And, you know, obviously we are always there for any of the youth that have been through our program and we see them often. And if they need help or they've built a lot of relationships with our case managers, too. And so uh, beyond that, we have like a job readiness coordinator who's helping build resumes and um, um, helping with interviews and coordinating with employers and things like that, too. I feel like those resources are so important, like just general life skills that you might have missed out on just because you didn't have the privilege of growing up in a home that is fostering that whole self. Yeah, I mean, there's real gaps in their upbringing. And so that's why, you know, that's why programs like Yes are important. And, you know, we're not part of like a formal network. You know, a lot of people ask us that, like, oh, is there like another Yes? And like, no, we just lucked out into this name here. We're really <laughs> lucky to have it in Omaha. But there's other programs like this in other places. Um, and that's why they're so important is to be that, particularly for those who've aged out of foster care, because there's just there's some real gaps in their upbringing a lot of times. And they're just sort of unceremoniously just like 19th birthday, like, Adios, good luck. And we can sort of jump in there and fill in those gaps. So do you work with foster programs, too, to make sure that any youth who maybe just got adios to that they could have you as a resource? I don't know. That's fair. <laughs> I don't That's know. That's fair. I'm sure, I'm, I, I'm sure that our program staff, I don't, I, I don't know how that system necessarily works, so I don't know. So for the community you serve, what are some of the common public misconceptions? Well, I think 
in general for misconceptions on homelessness is that people are always addicted to drugs or under the influence of some kind. And we certainly have youth in our program who struggle with substance abuse. That has certainly happened. Um, and we work with those youth to figure that out, preferably before they enroll in some of our larger programs. Um, but that is not necessarily always the case, right? I think sort of calling back to sort of what we talked about in the beginning, like you know, homelessness doesn't necessarily look like kids sleeping under bridges or on park benches, right? It looks like someone in your class maybe hasn't had a shower in a couple of days or um, someone who's aged out of the foster care system or someone who you work with and you just they just don't necessarily know where their next meal is going to come and they've got all their big stuff in their backpack and they're going or they're going to sleep in their car that night. Um, I think there's also this misconception. I think this particularly around adults in that like, oh, just go get a job and you're wasting your time panhandling and things like that. And I think that sometimes um, you underestimate what someone has been through to get to that point and the barriers that they have personally internally, externally, it's things that are outside of their control too in order to get that job. You know, I mean, people say all the time, right, that, um, you know, oh, just get up and go to that McDonald's job and whatever. And that's just not, a, it's just not realistic for some people. Like that person I mentioned before, that 19-year-old who'd been with us since um, February, he's just he's struggling with internal motivation. And because he has not had that um, example set for him by an adult. And it's a constant battle, I know, with our program staff of where's the line between, like, are we doing this person a favor by being their only motivator or are we doing it, him a disservice by allowing him to have the reality check of what it means to, like, really be street dependent, right? And so I think on the whole... I think people underestimate what it means to be a homeless person and experience homelessness. It's not all chronic, right? The, the, the people that you see sort of out often dealing with mental health issues, right? That's sometimes what it looks like, but it's not always. So we've talked a lot about the community you serve, but I'm curious about what a day in the life looks like for one of your employees or volunteers. And I'm sure there's a bunch of different roles. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll sort of think think about it from our sort of program staff's perspective. So, it, I mean, no day is the same, obviously. And I think that's sometimes why some of them get in there. Um, you know, we have a couple of our um, couple of our locations are staffed 24-7, which are in a group home and emer our emergency shelter are staffed 24-7. So a lot of times you have someone who's just there to make sure that everyone is copacetic and everyone is fine. And those can, days I'm sure can be pretty boring where you are just sort of hanging out with youth. They probably don't want to hang out with you. They just want to be <laughs> up in their room. Right. Um, but sometimes fights break out and you're going to have to break that up. Um, I'll say our emergency shelter is in a tricky part of town and getting, sometimes getting into the location is a safety issue as well. Right. And so you're just consistently on edge. Right. Um, our street uh, street outreach staff are accepting donations uh, from someone that has just dropped off, you know, their bundles of clothes that maybe you sent them to go donate, Maria, um, <laughs> which we've gotten a, a bit of, um, you know, and are, are intaking a youth that comes in off the street who's maybe heard about us from a school counselor or saw a little flyer on the library or things like that and um, is curious about what their next step is. Sometimes it's a boring day. Sometimes it's a not so boring day and police have to be called because someone is being dangerous to people around we uh, to, to other people around them. And, you know, which is the only time we'll really kick someone out of the program is if they're being a, um, um, a safety hazard to the people around them. Right. And you're going to have to break up fights. I've I've personally have had to go and speak with um, a very distraught mother who's looking for her daughter and really wanted to speak to, you know, our program staff just wanted a little backup. And so to go down and be able to say, look, look, they, you know, they're not here and they're not enrolled in our program. These are where the things go and things like that. So it's never a dull moment. Um, but there are you know, those days ebb and flow pretty mm -hmm. wildly, I'm sure. I feel like a lot of the work you do is like preventative care because of just the reality of homelessness adults in our city and across the U.S. But 
being able to have that preventative aspect of treat helping the youth get on their feet before they uh, before they're off on their own trying to figure it out for themselves. Do you guys kind of think of it in that like in that way? Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we really are. I think of yes is a, is most successful if we can, um, you know, see more youth throughout our day. And I know a few years ago we turned away. I think it was 83 youth from housing programs due to lack of space, Ugh. right? And so if we can be more successful, I think we are should be and are the sort of first stop to reducing homelessness in the city. Um, mm-hmm. If we can. We know that there's natural channels, right? Take that out of the foster care system. Um, we can't prevent, you know, domestic abuse and things like that. And so, and or mental health issues or people losing their job or whatever the other causes that get to um, to homelessness. But if we can uh, nip those in the bud early and get them on a path to self sufficiency, then yeah, we're absolutely preventative care, and that's. Um, Certainly, where I th- where we are, and where I know we want to be focusing in, in the next fifty years. So, talk to me about how you intentionally encourage self sufficiency. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean, like I said before, I think it we can't motivation has to come internally, and for mm-hmm. a lot of the youth we serve, they are lacking that role model. They're lacking that parental support. They don't know what else to do. And so we're helping provide that. So we have a lot of case managers who work one-on-one. They have to meet with them, I think, at least once a week. And then it's who are like our job readiness coordinator, you know, getting them to understand like what needs to be on their resume and how to act when they're at their job. We have a partnership with um, a local bank and they come in and do financial literacy. And I think it's just like a lot of modeling and of like, here's the like reality of what it is like before you. And we want to prepare you as much as possible. And like I said before, some people are not ready and they are just, and they recognize some recognize that themselves and some don't. And they um, like the number one thing people balk at is our, um, is our curfew. And so when someone comes to us, they either come to us through um, street outreach program and they'll schedule an interview. I will say a lot of interviews get missed because they just don't show up because they don't and they don't I don't I can't blame them. I'm sure they just don't understand the ramifications of their situation yet. Right. We can see that because we're looking at an outside perspective of, oh, my gosh, I'm sitting in my house in my car and my whatever. And how could somebody want not want to go to this interview and show up, but they don't necessarily have that perspective. So they have an interview. And from there, you know, we lay out strict expectations. You are going to have to be able to pass a drug test. You are going to have to be, um, um, you're gonna have to get a job and keep that job. Uh, you're going to have to help contribute to your rent. And so we do ask the youth, um, who are working and able to, to contribute to their rent, but then they get, I think it's 85% of it back when they successfully discharge. And so it's just holding them to these standards and expectations so that they can understand what's outside of yeses, nice orange doors. Yeah, it's it's like having some skin in the game too, I feel Absolutely. like. I was looking at your stats and I think they were maybe from a few years ago. So I hope that these numbers are still kind of relevant. Yeah. Uh, but almost 20% of those you serve identify as part of the LGBTQIA plus community, which is almost double the general population that identifies. Um, so why does this community in particular need your services? Yeah, I mean, I will say even last year was up from that. So it's 27% of our youth were self-identified as on the LGBTQ plus uh, spectrum. Uh, and I mean, the reality is we're in we're in a conservative state. We have a lot of parents who are maybe uncomfortable with their child's sexual identity, gender identity, that youth feels like, or it is the reality that um, the, that youth is not welcome in that home, whether they take that upon themselves or the parent, mother or father say you're gonna have to get out of here so how has this last year's legislative session affected those youth that you serve i mean well i think we'll see that when the numbers come in at the end of this current year Um, we work on a july to june fiscal year and so i mean in terms of this last legislative session i don't i don't think it's a coincidence that our number is up from even the 2020 number you gave of 20 percent and up to 27 percent for 2023 um 
It's also not a coincidence, I think, that this new LGBTQ plus center, um, Omaha for us. Omaha for us. Thank you. And John Carl Denkovich is um, running that up. So I don't think it's a coincidence. So then how do you kind of train your staff to be able to like fully understand? I mean, we said we talked about trauma informed, but also like welcoming these people who maybe got kicked out of their homes for who what they identify as or, you know, whatever reason. What does that kind of training look like for your staff? I know you said you're focused on um, the DEI aspect of this. Yeah, I know our program staff does a lot of does a lot of training. And I think it's also it's training, but I think it's also expectations from leadership of if someone is coming to this, this is how we need to treat them. And this is an organizational value. I mean, one of our values is inclusion and acceptance. And so we want to be able yeah. to accept those people for the way that they are and make the accommodations that are necessary for that person to be able to live successfully, you know, and considering, you know, so like I said, we have a, a couple of different houses for our TLP program and our maternity group home. Um, and those get right now, those get sorted by gender. And so, you know, if someone we will put someone into the home of the their self-identified gender identity um, and make the accommodations that are necessary for that person to feel comfortable. So kind of going back to the what's happening at the state level, I'm curious how uh, YES sees the city of Omaha and Nebraska's role. Like how can, uh, what laws are you guys like focusing on? Do you work with lawmakers to help the the youth that you serve? To be honest, we don't have an adequacy thing right now. It's something that we're focusing on soon. Cool. Um, so we know that that's important to focus on sort of the legislative aspect and the bills. And we have our sort of finger on the pulse of some things that come up. But I know it's a f- something that we want to focus on in coming years, be able to say, hey, you know, this is a bill that is going to affect a youth coming out of foster care or someone who is homeless right now. And so it's not a focus for us at the moment, but I know it's where we want to grow into. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Andy Saladino, Director of Development at Youth Emergency Services. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. I'm just always curious how like this, our city representatives and our state representatives can help those in our community directly, because sometimes it's like, how do you even write a law to make sure that it's affecting the people we want it to affect? So I'm always just kind of curious where that comes from for uh, people's missions. Well, I think that, I mean, homelessness, there's a lot of money that get funneled into homelessness, right? From the federal level to the state level to the city level. I mean, Omaha is, I, I know for sure, it's like a priority of um, Mayor Stothert's office. I mean, there's a um, homelessness coordinator, Tamara Dwyer, who's like solely focused on the homelessness issue in Omaha. So I know it's I know it's a concern. I know we've sort of spoken with our um, Congressman Bacon in the past um, about these things. We certainly have good relations with our city councilors and our legislators, um, you know, with all of the money that's coming out for this north-south um, recovery bill through the legislature, um, you know, we know that there are homelessness projects that are going to be supported by that too, right? And so, and but I think it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning is that it, in some ways it's an invisible issue. Mm-hmm. And that like when money trickles down, it has to be, and I don't, I understand this rationale, but it has to be quantifiable. So they literally do like a point in time count every January and summer where they truly go around one by one and like, count each homeless person on a specific day and those numbers get trickled up funneled up those numbers get funneled and get trickle up again those numbers get funneled up to the state to the federal level and that determines how much money gets filtered filtered down here but when youth are underrepresented of those numbers because that method doesn't match the reality of couch surfing or things like that the issue becomes even more invisible because at the end of the day, money is how a lot of people understand issues and how um, things get addressed. And so we know that we have a responsibility to like be the um, be the leader in Omaha around this issue. We're the only organization that's only focused on youth homelessness. The other organizational partners we have that are certainly have programs involved. We're the only ones solely focused. And so we have a responsibility to really educate 
up, around, down to everyone. As we're like kind of coming to a close, I'm curious if you can share with us some of the stories of hope from youth that have gone through your programs. So for 50 years, I mean, we've had a lot of youth come through our doors. And so we have kept track with a lot of those youth. We know that youth have gone on to become nurses and work in nonprofit jobs. We have someone who's one of our direct care workers um, who has been through the program herself and is now coming back to work with the youth. And so we have a lot of success stories that way. Um, um, young woman on our board, uh, Precious Leslie, uh, um, is was a former Yes Youth and so is now running sort of a marketing agency. Um, we have a lot of those success stories. I think that the one that comes to mind for me most is a young woman I said before um, named Kiana who had been handed all these things for so long and just was is you know was not able to figure out how to fend for herself until she came to yes she had some issues in our program she was picking lots of fights and i know um our program staff pulled a lot of hair um their own hair because of kiana but um she successfully discharged and she's now in that transition in place program she signed her own lease um she's a young mother yeah and so now she gets to sort of you know take what she learned despite all the like you know nicks and bruises in that process literal not figurative i mean figurative (laughs) not literal um nicks and bruises and so um sort of move into her next journey which i think is going to be really amazing for her I, you know, what's nice in my role in that, you know, I sit on our admissions team as sort of the um, external perspective. So we have all these. And so they're deciding mission team decides who's allowed into programs and that. And so many of them are entrenched with these youth all day, every day. And I am up in my office writing things and talking to people and whatever. And so I'm a little more removed so I can provide an external perspective. And I'd ask them, I was like, hey, we would love to interview some youth for some stories for website and things. Um, and they were like, oh, I should talk to Kiana. And I was like, oh, it's going to be tricky, but you know, whatever. And the stuff she said was so warm and kind about the yes, about staff, the yes staff, the yes program. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is from her. <laughs> so it was like really nice to be able to like share that, like, you're in the trenches every day and it's tricky and you're not able to zoom out necessarily all the time. You guys have a big fundraiser coming up, which I'm super excited for because I was asked to be a part of it. It's called Dance for a Chance and there's nine competitors and we are all currently paired up with professional dancers and we will be competing just like Dancing with the Stars with our professional dancers. The theme is... Halloween ball, mm-hmm. and it's your annual big fundraiser. Is that correct? It sure is. It's it our sure 14th is. year. And oh. funny, fun story, fun fact. I went to this event in 2017. Um, was, uh, the founder of Amplify Arts, it was known as Omaha Creative Institute at the time, she was competing. And then I actually stole this event idea and we did it at Amplify. It was called Grave. And it was about pairing a community person with an artist and they created a costume, Halloween costume together. So I'm actually not even a Halloween co- person. And now I've done two <laughs> Halloween fundraisers with this similar concept so yeah it's a really great event i mean if you've been to fundraisers in omaha they can sometimes be sometimes a little bit of a bummer and like you know these rubber chicken dinners and you know it's like not the most fun but it's like such a great event it's really fun people like you um are getting up there and they've been rehearsing for so long and they put on this great show and you know it's this sort of capitalist democracy model where one uh, one dollar is one vote um and you know competing for the uh people's choice and the judge's choice and it's a really great event so we are currently all the contestants are competing the people's choice is like you said one dollar equals one vote Mm -hmm. but you can also donate dinners meals clothes coats like you said yeah anything that gets donated like in kind will take the value of that and apply to people's score any meal will apply that to the score any volunteer hours will get applied you know it's a fun model i think to get people engaged and to understand more about yes and to use them as little community ambassadors to go out there and communicate you know get people to donate and fun and go do a fun dance and that's all great but to really like have a good time learn more about yes and get more people to understand the work that we do 
Yeah, I love it. And you guys make it pretty easy. You have your own Amazon wish list that people can buy. And then in the notes, they can write my name. They sure can. <laughs> so I get points mm-hmm. and we push myself up to, I, I want to win at least one. And it's funny, after my first dance class, like two days later, I like did not get good sleep because I was having problems with my hips. And I went to the physical therapist. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. He's like, did you do something recently that you may have, may have sparked this? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And then by the end of the appointment, it's like, oh, my gosh, I started dance class. And I yeah, did this one. It'll move. mess you up. Yeah. And my mom was like, are you sure you want to be doing this fundraiser when you like actually have to pay for physical therapy? And I was like, yes, I have to do this fundraiser. I'm having so much fun getting to learn how to dance and just learning more about yes and sharing that with the people in my community. I hosted a really fun open mic night at Page Turners and we raised money and a bunch of clothes. Um, so it is just a really fun way. I feel like it's a really fun way for me to participate in something that has such a true mission um, for our community here. So I'm really grateful to be a part of that and and that you were able to kind of come on this show to help keep spreading the good word. Yeah. I mean, you're in good company. We got a good group of people this year. Is it okay if I need to say the other names? Do you yeah, have time? Okay, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, you're in good company this year. I mean, you've got Roger Garcia, Douglas County Commissioner. You've got um, David Ortman from First National Bank, Emily Mawaja from the Kiwit Luminarium, Yesenia Valenzuela from the City of Omaha's office, uh, Eli Rigatuso from Bellevue University, and speaking of happy, I think was also on this show. Uh-huh. Um, we've got you. We've got Natalie Boyle from Lindsay Corporation, Sharice Dendy Sanders from the Department of Economic Development, Development, Christine Henning- Henningsen from the University of Lincoln, of Nebraska Lincoln. So it's a good group. And, you know, we wanted to really get people who represented, you know, we're out in the community. We're connected with corporations, obviously, but we're, you know, represented the different kind of people that we serve as well. It'll be yesomaha.org. You can find Dance for a Chance. You can vote now. If you come, you can um, certainly vote in the room as well. Uh, we have some, uh, our judges this year, David Wingert. We have Andy Hoig. And we also have the um, Rosie, the North Omaha cat lady from TikTok, which was such a pipe dream of like, wouldn't it be great if we got her? And we messaged her and she was like, heck yeah, I'm in. I'm I so excited. It. I love her. Uh, it's going to be a great event. So please help spread the word and, I mean, help support Yes throughout this entire year because you guys do amazing work. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Riverside Chats was created by Tom Noblock and is a production of 91.5 KIOS Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Maria Corpus.